Hello, this is Iris, and you're tuned in to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 9th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at today's weather forecast first thing, this coming from KCRG. A little cooler today, with additional cooling for the weekend. After an active weather day on Thursday, quieter conditions are here for a little while. The biggest thing to watch today is a deck of low stratus clouds that is covering the northernmost few tiers of counties in Iowa so far this morning. This area could spread to around the U.S. Highway 20 corridor, giving grayer skies in those areas. It would also limit the warming potential for anybody who winds up underneath it. To the south of these clouds, some scattered higher clouds may move through, but sunshine will be more common overall. Thus, expect a split in temperatures today, low to mid-40s north of Highway 20, mid to upper 40s around the Highway 20 to Highway 30 corridors, and low to mid-50s from Interstate 80 and south. Winds will also be breezy at times, but significantly lighter than yesterday's very strong gusts. A secondary cold front moves through this evening and tonight, which will shift our winds from a westerly direction to a more northwesterly or northerly one. This will pull in a reinforcing shot of cooler temperatures as we head into the weekend. Skies will also turn clearer overnight, allowing lows to dip into the upper 20s for most of us. Expect a bit of a breeze on Saturday with partly cloudy skies. Thermometer temperatures will be in the upper 30s to low 40s, but wind chills may feel more like the low to mid 30s during the afternoon. While still warm for this time of year, it will be markedly cooler than the extremely anomalous temperatures we experience for most of the week. Be ready for the change. Less wind accompanies Sunday, though temperatures will stay fairly steady. Still, with at least partial sunshine possible, this should make for a decent end to the weekend. Next week is also looking fairly quiet in most cases, though there are a couple of exceptions. Those do not include the first few days of the week, when Iowa will be in the 20s and highs reach the low to mid-40s. Partly to mostly sunny skies are likely during this time, setting up some pleasant weather. Valentine's Day, taking place on Wednesday, also looks pretty good weather-wise. The exceptions arrive starting as soon as Wednesday night, when a slim chance for a rain or snow shower works in, as a small disturbance could pass through the area. Another storm system gives us another chance for rain or snow by Friday, though this chance is also looking low at this point. Temperatures look to turn a little bit colder by the end of the nine-day forecast into the following weekend, with highs slipping into the low to mid-30s. This places readings close to seasonal normals for that portion of the calendar. Now let's look at the two articles on the front page of The Courier today. This one is titled, Migrant Activists Rally at the Capitol. Protesters focus on four bills they say hurt immigrant communities. This filed by the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. The article begins with a photograph taken at the Capitol's rotunda 
and we see a woman speaking behind a podium using a microphone, and the rally attendees behind her are holding signs. Among them, there's one that says, Iowa nice, not ice. Dateline Des Moines. Iowa immigration activists rallied in opposition to a number of bills targeted at undocumented immigrants at the Iowa State Capitol on Wednesday. Members of the Iowa Migrant Movement for Justice, a group focused on providing legal services and advocacy for immigrants and refugees, said during the rally on Wednesday that the bills are an attack on immigrant communities and an attempt to force them out of the state. Quote, For years, legislators have been passing bills attacking vulnerable Iowans, restricting people's rights, and further marginalizing certain communities, said Vanessa Marcano-Kelly, one of the rally's leaders. The demonstrators on Wednesday were focused on four bills they said hurt immigrant communities in Iowa, and they're listed here. The first one, Senate File 108, a bill requiring Iowa businesses to use the E-Verify system to ensure prospective employees are in the country legally. And House File 2112 is a bill barring undocumented immigrants from receiving public assistance and making it a crime to transport or harbor undocumented immigrants. House File 2320 is a bill requiring people to be citizens or legally present in the U.S. to be granted in-state tuition at Iowa universities. And the fourth one, Senate File 2211, a bill granting Iowa law enforcement and courts the ability to carry out immigration enforcement, including deporting undocumented immigrants. Two of those bills made it out of a committee and are eligible for a floor vote, while another was reported out of a subcommittee. Senate File 2211, that's the one giving law enforcement and courts the ability to carry out immigration enforcement, was scheduled for a subcommittee meeting on Thursday. Luis Gomez, a high school soccer coach, said at the rally that he was worried the bill dealing with transporting undocumented immigrants would make it a crime to drive members of his team to and from games. He said he works with students from immigrant families, and the bill would put him in danger of violating the law if he does not ask students about their immigration status. Quote, Even for arranging one teammate to give another a ride, I would not be able to do that in good faith because I don't know this kid's immigration status and I'm not going to ask them about their immigration status, he said. Republican Representative Steve Holt of Denison, who led the subcommittee on that bill, said last week it is not intended to criminalize those activities. Republicans who advanced the bill said this month that they are intended to de-incentivize unlawful immigration into Iowa and prevent Iowa taxpayer money from going to people who are not in the country legally. And now, for something completely different, this column also has the heading, Drag Performances. Individuals who expose minors to an obscene performance could be prosecuted and charged with a misdemeanor under a bill advanced by lawmakers. Senate File 2176 would make knowingly exposing anyone under 18 to such a performance 
a serious misdemeanor, as well as knowingly selling a ticket or admitting a minor to a venue where such a performance is held. The bill defines obscene performance as invoking sexual acts or appeals to the purient interest and is patently offensive, and the performance taken as a whole lacks serious artistic, literary, political, or scientific value, unquote. Senator Janice Weiner, a Democrat from Iowa City, and Keenan Crow with LGBTQ advocacy group One Iowa, raised concerns the legislation could result in wide-ranging lawsuits and a chilling effect of discouraging LGBTQ plus pride parades and drag shows. Senator Sandy Salmon, a Republican from Janesville, the bill sponsor, said, quote, Obscene performance exposure is exactly what is done to groom children for sexual abuse and exploitation, unquote. It breaks down children's God-given modesty, Salmon said. While Salmon's bill, which a subcommittee advanced Wednesday, does not explicitly name drag shows as obscene performances, Crow believed that was the genesis of the new bill. Salmon, last year, introduced a bill banning minors from attending drag shows. Crow worried about the language in the bill that allows for a parent or guardian to bring a lawsuit and seek damages and other relief against any person that has knowingly disseminated or exhibited obscene material to a minor, and that will result in harassment by bad actors who misinterpret Iowa's obscenity law. Quote, Basically, every drag performance I've ever seen does not meet the definition of obscenity, Crow said. What I worry about is that there will be some extremely litigious activists on this and will bring suit after suit after suit, unquote. Senator Mike Klimesh, a Republican from Spillville, worried the bill could lead to shotgun lawsuits against a variety of local officials stemming from a public event like a pride parade. Klimesh voted with Senator Sherry Lynn Westridge, a Republican from Ottumwa, to advance the legislation, but said he wanted to see the bill changed in committee. Social Studies Instruction A set of social studies curriculum developed by a conservative think tank would be required in Iowa schools under a bill Republican lawmakers advanced out of a subcommittee on Wednesday. The bill, House File 2330, includes instructions to teach students about the structure of the U.S. government, the rights and responsibilities of U.S. citizens, and the cultural heritage of Western civilization, the United States, and the state of Iowa, unquote. The bill requires that students in grades 1 through 12 learn about a range of concepts, people, and events in U.S. history, including the flag and national anthem, the country's founding documents, and figures like Benjamin Franklin and Frederick Douglass. It also would require schools to provide instruction on, quote, the cultural heritage of Western civilization, starting in first grade. Starting in seventh grade, schools would need to teach about the study of and devotion of the United States' exceptional and praiseworthy history. The bill was sponsored by a number of Republican lawmakers, including House Speaker Pat Grassley. 
The language in the bill was developed by the National Association of Scholars, a conservative think tank, said Representative Brooke Bowden, a Republican from Indianola, during the subcommittee meeting Wednesday. People representing schools, teachers, and administrators told lawmakers that the bill is an unnecessary mandate. They said the legislature has a history of not prescribing specific curriculum in state law. Republican Representative Steve Holt of Denison said he believes students are not learning U.S. history and civics and are instead being taught that the country is systemically racist and not worth fighting for, unquote. Holt and Bowden voted to advance the bill out of subcommittee, while Democratic Representative Heather Matson of Ankeny did not. Child support for pregnant mothers. State lawmakers advanced a bill Wednesday that would require child support during pregnancy. House File 2103 is eligible for debate and a vote in the full House. Under current law, judges consider the income that both parents earn in determining child support after the child is born. Representative John Wills, a Republican from Spirit Lake, said Iowa would be the first state to force men to support their child from the moment of conception if the bill becomes a law. Paternity tests can be performed during or after a pregnancy, Wills said. Once paternity is established, a judge could order the father to retroactively provide financial support during the nine months of pregnancy. A court could also order the father to provide health insurance coverage to the mother during pregnancy. The bill passed out of committee, 14 to 7, with Democrats opposed. Democratic Representative Megan Schreinabas, a Des Moines physician who serves on the committee, expressed concerns the law could allow individuals in contested paternity cases to force an invasive amniocentesis test of pregnant women to establish paternity and make it more difficult for women fleeing abusive relationships. Bill would create looting offense. Lawmakers advanced a bill on Wednesday that established the crime of looting and made it punishable as up to a Class C felony. The bill, House File 2259, was inspired by incidents of smash-and-grab robberies seen in other states, said Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, who led the subcommittee on the bill on Wednesday. Any looting of property over $10,000 would be a Class C felony and punishable by up to 10 years in prison and a fine of up to $10,000. Looting of property between $1,000 and $10,000 would be a Class D felony, punishable by up to five years in prison and a fine of up to $7,500. Looting of property worth less than $1,000 would be an aggravated misdemeanor, punishable by up to two years in prison and a fine of up to $6,250. Next article, Lawmaker, Public Worker Unions Gaming the System. Democrat says GOP legislators' proposed fix is union-busting. Story was written by Aaron Murphy of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. A public employee's union could be nullified if its public employer, like the state, school board, or local government, 
fails to submit a list of workers eligible to vote in the recertification election under legislation advanced Wednesday by Republican lawmakers. The bill's manager said during a legislative hearing the measure is needed to plug a loophole in the state collective bargaining law by which public unions were avoiding required elections, but one Democratic critic called it union-busting. From 2020 through 2022, the state did not receive information on union-eligible employees in more than 40% of instances in which a union was required to be recertified by a vote of its eligible workers, according to the Public Employment Relations Board, the state board that manages public employer-worker relations. That means in 40% of instances in which a union was required to be recertified, no election was conducted, according to the board. Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat from Des Moines, and a lawyer, said that typically happens when the public employer is certain a bargaining unit would recertify, has a good working relationship with the unit and its workers, and thus does not feel compelled to force the election. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, however, interprets it differently. Schultz said he believes some public employers are allowing unions to skip recertification elections to maintain harmony with workers and the unions that represent them. Schultz said he believes that after Statehouse Republicans in 2017 passed a law that stripped public worker unions of most of their collective bargaining rights, some of those bargaining units have been, quote, gaming the system, Schultz said. His bill, Senate Study Bill 3158, would address that by decertifying a union if the employer fails to provide the list of eligible employees. Quote, I believe, and I think the data show, that the majority, if not all public employers, who are not submitting the list are in sympathy with the union and not wanting to put them through a retention election, possibly because they know that the employees don't feel they need representation. So we have removed the motive for a sympathetic employer to not submit the list, Schultz said. The rate at which an eligible employee was not provided to the state and a recertification election was not held fell to 26% in 2023, according to state data. Representatives of labor unions who spoke at the hearing on Schultz's proposal at the Iowa Capitol said that figure dropped after the law was tweaked through the rulemaking process by putting pressures on employers with hearings and penalties. Bolton called Schultz's proposal an attempt to break up public worker unions. Bolton noted that in the years since the 2017 state law change, public worker unions have voted to recertify unions at a high rate. Over the past four years, more than 700 bargaining units voted to recertify, while only 58 voted against recertification, according to state figures. Quote, but now, Republicans are pushing Schultz's bill, which allows employers to cancel union elections before they even happen. The agenda is obvious. Eliminate workplace rights, 
limit wages and benefits, and bust unions, Bolton said in a statement. Quote, we fought against the Republican union-busting agenda in 2017, filling the Capitol with workers and debating the bill all through the night. We won't let them make another anti-worker power grab without a fight, Bolton's statement said. Quote, we know Iowans want higher wages, better workplace protections, and a higher quality of life, not weaker laws and fewer rights. Now is the time for Iowans to stand up and speak out against Republican politicians' anti-workers' agenda. Schultz, after Wednesday's hearing, insisted his intention is not to break up public employee unions, but to ensure compliance with state law. He noted that, under the proposal, if an employer fails to submit the list of union-eligible workers, the bargaining unit can ask the state courts to compel the employer to comply. Quote, my intent is not to beat up or beat down on any further bargaining units, but I want this loophole closed because I do believe labor organizations are gaming the system, Schultz said. Schultz and fellow Republican Senator Adrian Dickey of Packwood signed off on advancing the bill out of subcommittee Wednesday, making it eligible for consideration by the full Senate Workforce Committee. The third legislator on the subcommittee panel, Democratic Senator Todd Taylor of Cedar Rapids, declined to put his support behind the bill. Representatives for labor organizations representing teachers, police officers, and firefighters were among those who spoke in opposition to the bill during the public comment period of Wednesday's hearing. Some expressed concern that a public employer could put a bargaining unit on a path to decertification by intentionally withholding the required list of union-eligible workers. Schultz said he does not believe any public employer would do that, but if it did happen, the bargaining unit would have the ability to petition the courts. The only groups who spoke in favor of the bill are financed by the conservative Americans for Prosperity and the Michigan-based Mackinac Center for Public Policy, both of which advocate across the country for conservative, limited government and free market policies. The Mackinac Center in 2020 published a report titled, quote, Top 20 State-Level Labor Reforms, unquote. Justices Skeptical of Case Court Seems Poised to Reject Efforts to Keep Trump Off the Ballot. This story comes to us from the Associated Press journalist Mark Sherman, Dateline, Washington. The Supreme Court seems poised to reject attempts to kick former President Donald Trump off the 2024 ballot. A definitive ruling for Trump, the leading Republican candidate for president, would largely end efforts in Colorado, Maine, and elsewhere to prevent his name from appearing on the ballot. During arguments Thursday, conservative and liberal justices alike questioned whether Trump can be disqualified from being president again because of his efforts to undo his loss in the 2020 election to Democrat Joe Biden, ending with the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Their main concern was whether Congress must act before states can invoke a constitutional provision that was adopted after the Civil War 
to prevent former office holders who, quote, engaged in insurrection from holding office again. There also were questions about whether the president is covered by the provision. Without such congressional legislation, Justice Elena Kagan was among several justices who wanted to know, quote, why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States, unquote. The outcome could reflect a broad consensus of the court, and it could come quickly. Eight of the nine justices suggested they were open to at least some of the arguments made by Jonathan Mitchell, Trump's lawyer at the Supreme Court. Only Justice Sonia Sotomayor sounded like she might vote to uphold the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that found that Trump, quote, engaged in insurrection and is ineligible to be president. The state court ruled Trump should not be on the ballot for the state's Republican primary on March 5th. And another sign of trouble for the Colorado voters who sued to remove Trump from the ballot, the justices spent almost no time talking about whether Trump actually engaged in insurrection following the 2020 election. Lawyer Jason Murray, representing the voters, pressed the point that Trump incited the Capitol attack to prevent the peaceful handover of power, quote, for the first time in history, unquote. Mitchell argued that the Capitol riot was not an insurrection and, even if it were, Trump did not participate. Trump, speaking to reporters after the proceedings, called the Supreme Court argument, quote, a beautiful thing to watch in many respects, even as he complained about the case being brought in the first place. The court indicated it will try to act quickly, shortening the period in which it receives written briefings and holds arguments. Report. Biden willfully retained classified documents. Justice Department concludes no criminal charges are warranted. This article comes from the Associated Press, and the dateline is Washington. President Joe Biden, quote, willfully retained and disclosed highly classified materials when he was a private citizen, including documents about military and foreign policy in Afghanistan and other sensitive national security matters, according to a Justice Department report that nonetheless says no criminal charges are warranted for him or anyone else. Thursday's report from Special Counsel Robert Hur, a former U.S. attorney for Maryland, during the Trump administration, is harshly critical of Biden's handling of sensitive government materials, but also details reasons why he shouldn't be charged. The findings will likely blunt his ability to forcefully condemn Donald Trump, Biden's likely opponent in November's presidential election, over a criminal indictment charging the former president with illegally hoarding classified records at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Her's report says evidence suggests that many of the documents recovered at the Penn-Biden Center in parts of Biden's Delaware home and in his Senate papers at the University of Delaware were retained by mistake. And now, listeners, we just take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 9th on IRIS, that's I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this message. 
Kate fell in love with her husband after one date and with her son after one look, and she risked it all by trying meth just one time. Meth never, ever. Visit yourlifeiowa.org, brought to you by the Iowa Department of Public Health. Now, let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial today comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot and was written by Art Cullen. Calm yourself. What would Mel Brooks do? A congenital optimist, or so he claimed on social media, had turned to despair over the superficiality of our politics and civic life. I know the feeling. The despair part. The Iowa legislature is in session. Stupid can be funny. It's something to hang on to while you get through hard times. Such as Republican legislators breaking out into singing the Star-Spangled Banner while attempting to require every school kid to sing it every day. Beverly Sills could barely master the tune. Laura Bellin, the bleeding heartland blogger, fought for years to gain press credentials and finally got them after suing the house clerk so she could witness this Imagining the scene makes me laugh. They're so hung up about sex and sexual identities, they can think of little else besides getting rid of income taxes and higher education. Conversations in the cloakroom among a bunch of sexually frustrated guys with beards must be titillatingly absurd. What would Mel Brooks say? I think he already did in Blazing Saddles when he portrayed Governor Petomaine which in French means farting maniac. First, God gave us fools for laughter. So laugh. There is much to fret about. Governor Reynolds wants to disable the area education agencies. She will not give up on harassing gay and transgender people, an unhealthy obsession. Legislators are trying to undermine colleges because they teach people how to think critically. Eliminating the income tax will create big problems. Iowa has been on a rightward lurch for many years that makes International's Falls look halfway attractive in February. Take heart. Average Iowans are planting their flag. Our liberties we prize, our rights we will maintain, and are fighting back. Special ed moms are not to be trifled with. They organized, crowded the Capitol, and overwhelmed legislators. The House threw out Reynolds' bill to gut the AEAs. The governor with a tin ear is not going quietly on the issue. That should be entertaining. Likewise, a House committee scotched a bill that would strike civil rights protections over gender identity following intense criticism of citizens flooding the State House. Legislators noticed that the Moms for Liberty got their hats handed to them in city and school elections last fall across Iowa. We would prefer that our moral peccadilloes are not hung out by politicians. We are, at root, disturbed by book bans and distorting history. The pendulum swings right and back toward center. Reynolds is not having her undisputed way. Legislators see how weak she is with the humiliation of Ron DeSantis suffered following her endorsement. Representative Megan Jones, a Republican from Sioux Rapids, does not appear to be shaking in her boots 
over threats to primary her for standing against gay discrimination. Also recall that Warren County voters ran off the county auditor for being an election denier, this in a country that voted heavily for Donald Trump, but did not buy into the big lie. If your child were gay or in need of speech therapy, or you don't want to be a member of the youth brigade, you might just shake Iowa off your boots. But people are staying and fighting for their rights, and for what this state could be. They got some of the worst ideas so far killed. There are plenty more bad ideas, like restoring the death penalty. But there are cracks exposed in the right-wing architecture that are being exploited. Many Republicans understand that they might have gone too far in their culture wars. In Washington, the House is set to reject a Senate border security compromise. It makes clear that the GOP wants to maintain a dysfunctional system in perpetuity for political purposes. Voters will come to digest that with the help of the Biden campaign. They want solutions, not more pointless argument. The GOP could lose the House over it, and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell fears keeping his title because of it. Senator Chuck Grassley, the old Republican warhorse, says he wants to hold up a bipartisan bunch of tax breaks because it might help Biden. It is so bald, it's funny. Embrace the absurd. The MAGA Corps is melting down over a woman wearing a sequined garter and a Kansas City Chiefs jacket. Who thought Taylor Swift could strike such loathing just by hugging Travis Kelsey's mom in the skybox? It could swing the election, if not the Super Bowl, they chatter. Great stuff. Wait till we get to the part when Trump attempts to deliver the inaugural dress in absentia while wearing an ankle monitor. We got it all. Sex, love, a neutered mob boss, a plodding attorney general, a teetering incumbent, and great masses wanting someone's head on a pike. And we have self-correcting democracy still, so far. It is working at a certain level in Iowa, where we appear to be retreating from some of our worst excesses. If you can appreciate the satire, you can find your way forward, or laugh at your despair. From the New York Times, written by Nicholas Kristof, We Americans Neglect Our Children. And it begins with a photograph of what appears to be a teenager with his back toward the camera, sitting at a lunchroom table, with his head down on the table and a backpack in front of him. And here's the text. Individually, we adore and pamper our children. We shuttle them from soccer practice to music lessons and then organize their playdates with meticulous fanaticism. Yet collectively, we mistreat America's children, especially by the standards of other wealthy countries. When we're formulating policies for children as a whole, rather than coddling our own little angels, we fall scandalously short. We prize children in the abstract, but as a society, tend to ignore their needs. Children are more likely to go hungry or live in poverty in America than in most of our peer countries, and they are also much more likely to die because of drugs, guns, accidents, and an inequitable health care system. 
If the United States simply had the same mortality rates for young people as the rest of the rich world, we would annually save the lives of at least 40,000 Americans aged 19 and under, according to Stephen Wolf, a population health expert at Virginia Commonwealth University. In other words, an American child dies about every 13 minutes because we don't do a good job as our peers in protecting kids, and it's getting worse. An American child's chances of reaching adulthood have fallen in recent years, Wolf told me. This election year, these are issues that should be central in the battles between Democrats and Republicans. They're not. For children don't vote and are political orphans. The consequences are felt not just by low-income children at the margins. A country as a whole can't thrive when so many are left behind. What distinguished the United States for more than a century, and it helped it become the world's leading economy, was strong mass education that included widespread high school and college attendance, even as some European countries did better with elite education. But over the last 50 years, we've faltered in supporting and educating children overall as other countries have moved ahead. We've tried to fix problems at the back end with the juvenile justice system or criminal justice system or with those alerts to look out for human traffickers. But we have entire failed structures like foster care. Fewer than 5% of young people who've spent time in foster care graduate from a four-year college. Several studies suggest that up to 60% of trafficking survivors have been in the system. Yet when was the last time a politician was asked how to fix foster care? I've been thinking about this because I recently participated in the Summit on America's Kids and Families, hosted by Common Sense Media. James Staler, the group's founder, wants to push children onto the local, state, and national agenda this year, maybe a million-child march on Washington, so that political candidates are forced to answer questions about our indifference to the well-being of children. In the closing session at the summit, a few of us talked about what a pro-child agenda might look like. Here are my suggestions. An early child care program modeled after the one that exists in the United States military. If our armed forces can operate a child care program with fees based on ability to pay, then the rest of the country can as well. A government-supported early childhood program rescues parents and kids alike. Roughly one child in six is living with a parent who misused drugs in the last year, and some of these children can find a lifeline in a high-quality program like Educare that also coaches parents. Other rich nations spend an average of about 29 times as much on child care per toddler as the United States. And the next idea, an expanded refundable child tax credit to cut child poverty. Most other wealthy countries have introduced a monthly child allowance to lift children out of poverty, and the United States followed in 2021 with the refundable child tax credit. It was a huge success 
that helped slash child poverty almost in half, one of the most successful policies of my lifetime. And then Republican opposition caused the program to expire at the end of 2021, and child poverty has soared again. Next idea, a new regulatory body to oversee technology companies and new media, just as the Federal Communications Commission oversees old media. Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado has championed this idea, and it has become urgent as TikTok and artificial intelligence play a growing presence in children's lives. Young people already face a crisis in mental health that appears correlated to the spread of smartphones and social media. I don't want to overregulate, but tech companies need oversight as they monetize our children. Next idea, improvements in K-14 education to get every child literate, numerate, graduating from high school and, where possible, into at least community college, the military, or technical training. American children are particularly incompetent at math in ways that hold our entire country back. If even Mississippi, with unconscionable child poverty, can focus on reading and significantly raise education outcomes, then no state has an excuse for letting students fail. The best metric for society's future is how well it nurtures its next generation. So this election year, let's look beyond the political horse race and culture war to grill candidates on their policies toward children, and thus our country's future. Now, from the New York Times, Trump, Immigration, and the Lump of Labor Fallacy. Written by Paul Krugman. What did Kurt Vonnegut, the novelist, and Francois Mitterrand, the socialist president of France from 1981 to 1995, have in common with Donald Trump? Both, at some point, believed in what economists call the lump of labor fallacy. This is the view that there is a fixed amount of work to be done, and that if someone or something, some group of workers or some kind of machine, is doing some of that work, That means fewer jobs for everyone else. And Trump clearly shares that belief. As I noted in my most recent column, it underlies his hostility to immigration. Well, that and his belief that immigrants are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country, unquote. It also underlies his protectionism. So this seems like a good time to talk about the lump of labor fallacy, how we know it's a fallacy, and why it's a zombie an idea that refuses to die, and instead keeps shambling along, eating people's brains. First, about Vonnegut and Mitterrand. Vonnegut's first novel, Player Piano, published in 1952, envisioned a grim future in which automation has led to mass unemployment. The machines can do everything, so there's no need for human workers. Mitterrand coming to power in a nation that had experienced a large rise in unemployment since the early 1970s, reduced France's retirement age from 65 to 60, in part because he and his advisors believed that encouraging older French citizens to leave the workforce would free up jobs for younger workers. Mitterrand's successors have spent decades trying to undo the damage. 
Why is there always a substantial group of people, the lumpen commentariat, who believe that there's a limited amount of work to be done, so machines that increase productivity or immigrants entering the workforce take away jobs? Many of these people probably haven't even tried to think their views through. But it's also true that something like the lump of labor story does make sense if you think about an individual industry in isolation. For example, long ago, one of my uncles operated a factory using plastic injection molding to produce lawn ornaments. Basically, he was supplying the then burgeoning suburbs of New York with pink flamingos. Since there was, presumably, a limited demand for pink flamingos, machines that allowed production of pink flamingos with fewer workers would reduce employment in the industry, while entry of new producers would take away jobs from existing pink flamingo workers. Or to take a less whimsical example, there are limits to the amount of food people want to consume. So, rising productivity in agriculture leads to reduced need for farmers. America has about twice as many people now as it did when Vonnegut published Player Piano, but employs only around a third as many people in agriculture. But while there's limited demand for pink flamingos or wheat, there's no evidence that there's limited demand for stuff in general. When incomes rise, people will find something to spend their money on, creating jobs for workers displaced by technology or newcomers to the workforce. Machines do, in fact, perform many tasks that used to require people. Output per worker is more than four times what it was when Vonnegut wrote, so we could produce 1950s level of output with only a quarter of as many workers. In fact, however, employment has tripled. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that technological progress can never hurt workers or some groups of workers. Technology that makes a traditional occupation largely disappear, for example, the way freight containerization more or less eliminated the need for longshoremen, can be devastating for those displaced. And what's referred to as biased technological change, which reduces demand for some inputs while increasing it for others, can reduce the real incomes of large groups. Many economists believe that skill-based technological change, which raises the demand for highly educated workers as an input and decreases it for less skilled labor, has been a factor in rising inequality. Although many others, myself included, are skeptical, it's at least arguable that capital-biased technological change caused real wages to stagnate during the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. But the crude argument that technological progress causes mass unemployment because workers are no longer needed is just wrong. What about competition from new workers? If you're worried about immigrants taking away jobs from native-born Americans, consider the effect of truly huge influx to the labor market, a mass movement of American women into paid work from the mid-1960s to around the year 2000. Did working women take jobs away from men? I'm sure many men thought they would, but they didn't. The big rise in women's employment didn't come at men's expense. 
True, there has been a small decline in male employment over the past six decades, perhaps reflecting the decline of manufacturing and the emergence of left-behind regions in the heartland. But the millions of women entering the paid workforce clearly didn't displace male workers. Which brings me to current concerns about immigration. As I noted in my column, Trump and those around him clearly believe that immigrants take jobs away from native-born Americans. And I also noted that all of the increase in employment since the eve of the COVID-19 pandemic has involved foreign-born workers. So did this rise in immigrant employment come at the expense of native-born workers? When looking at the numbers, it's important to take into account the effects of an aging population, which has caused a long-term downward trend in labor force participation. So I asked Adriajat Dubier of the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, one of America's top labor economists, and someone who knows his way around Bureau of Labor Statistics data much better than I do, to calculate employment rates among prime-age, native-born Americans. Here's what he found. Even though immigrants as a group are responsible for all recent employment growth, they haven't been taking jobs from native-born, who are more likely to be employed in their prime working years than they were before the pandemic. By the way, I mentioned earlier that Trump's protectionism involves the same kind of lump-sum thinking that pervades his views on immigration. Trump and those around him, like Peter Navarro, his top trade advisor, currently facing prison time for contempt of Congress, are obsessed with trade deficits. If you read what they've had to say on the subject, it's clear that they imagine that there's a fixed amount of demand in the world and that any business that goes to foreigners is business lost to America. It's lump sum all the way. Now, of course I don't think that this evidence, or for that matter, any evidence on any subject, will change Trump's thinking on this or anything else. But there are some people who imagine that they're being sophisticated and forward-thinking when they're actually recapitulating old fallacies. No, AI and automation, for all the changes they may bring, won't ultimately take away jobs, and neither will immigrants. Don't join the lumpen commentariat. And now we have an opinion piece that was written by guest columnists Hannah Hayes and Trey Jackson, and this appeared in the Des Moines Register on February 1st, 2024. Hannah Hayes and Trey Jackson are members of March for Our Lives, Iowa. Following the fatal shooting in Perry, Governor Kim Reynolds was quoted in the register as saying, quote, No additional gun laws would have prevented what happened. There's just evil out there, unquote. This statement completely disregards data related to gun violence prevention legislation. March for Our Lives, Iowa, recently released its legislative agenda outlining exactly how gun violence is preventable. Specifically, extreme risk protection orders allow law enforcement to intervene and prevent potential shooters from accessing a weapon temporarily if they pose a threat to themselves or others. Their effectiveness has been empirically proven 
to reduce suicides and mass shootings, according to a, a review by experts at the University of California, Davis. Yet, this type of legislation continues to be ignored by our legislators. While evil will always exist, that doesn't mean we cannot prevent this evil from stealing more lives like the ones lost in Perry. The hundreds of youth who walked out of class and gathered at the Capitol in protest following the Perry shooting had a message for our leaders. Enough is enough. At that protest, we delivered a letter to our governor. Here is an excerpt of what the youth of Iowa had to say. Quote, what happened in Perry is an all-too-common occurrence in Iowa. Students go to school every day fearing for their lives, never knowing if their school is next. The most devastating part, each and every tragedy and life lost was preventable. Countless Iowans, including a sixth-grade student and the principal at Perry Middle School, could still be alive today. Quote, Action must be taken now. Iowa must pass an extreme risk protection laws, hate crime prohibitions, and mandatory reporting of lost or stolen guns. Stand with Iowans in the face of this terrible tragedy. Quote, After the shooting at East High School, you dismissed the desperate need for gun safety laws. Iowans tried to tell you to take action. We pleaded that now must be the time to pass meaningful gun legislation. But devastatingly, no action was taken. You put our lives on the line. Quote, then a year later, after another deadly shooting at Starts Right Here, you said, quote, My heart breaks for them, these kids and their families. Yet again, nothing was done. Now, after the shooting at Perry High School, all you have to offer are more empty words. Our hearts are heavy today, and our prayers are with everyone in the Perry community. Still, nothing has been done. You passed book bans, don't say gay bills, and abortion restrictions, all in the name of, quote, protecting children. However, you have failed to protect the students at East. You have failed to protect the youth at Starts Right Here. You have failed to protect the children at Perry. And without meaningful gun safety legislation, you have failed to protect the citizens of Iowa from the inevitable gun violence yet to come. Quote, Governor Reynolds, the people of Iowa are asking you to take action and prevent gun violence. If not for yourself or your party, pass legislation for the protection of youth across this state. Unquote. Now let's turn to the sports page. Under college women's basketball, Stulke pours in 47 as number two Iowa beats Penn State. Clark chips in 27 points and 15 assists. Iowa City, Iowa. Hannah Stulke scored a career-high 47 points and Caitlin Clark had 27 points as number two Iowa defeated Penn State 111-93 on Thursday night. Clark now has 3,489 career points, moving within 38 points of NCAA women's basketball career scoring leader Kelsey Plum. Clark, who was 8 of 23 from the field, had 15 assists to record her 56th career double-double, but also committed a career-high 
12 turnovers. But Clark was getting the ball to Stolke with 11 assists on her 17 field goals. Stolke had the second-highest scoring game in program history, hitting 17 of 20 shots and going 13 of 21 from the free-throw line. Iowa won its fourth consecutive game to stay tied with Ohio State at the top of the conference standings. Clark seemed out of sorts in the first quarter, but settled down when she started making shots in the second quarter. Stolke helped the Hawkeyes keep pace with the Nittany Lions until Clark could get going, and continued to dominate Penn State inside in the second half. Up next, Penn State at Wisconsin on Sunday, and Iowa at Nebraska on Sunday. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 9th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can listen to a recording of this reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. 